The primary source of material for this presentation is drawn from a travel journal from 1931, some National Park Service materials, some railroad literature materials of the year as well, and then from some other sources, uh, Great Depression sources. So our story begins on Saturday, August 1st. 1931. There we go. The city of Brotherly Love simmers with discontent. Entire working class neighborhoods are bathed in a fog of gloom. For more than two years, far too many out of work fathers. Fathers have been roaming the streets in search of jobs that have never materialized. Mothers talk in hushed tones. Children complain of hunger. The great crash had taken place on New Year's on, uh, on New York's Wall Street in October 1929. Philadelphia, though, had been in dire straits months prior. One man's anguished plea for help in April 1929, amid a 10.4% local unemployment rate, reflected the sentiment of many at that time. Have you anybody you can send around to my family to tell my wife you have no job to give me? He pleaded to a welfare society trying to help the unemployed find work. She does not believe that a man who walks the street from morning till night, day after day, actually can't get a job in this town. She thinks I don't want to work. A welfare investigator vividly described the growing homeless problem in Philadelphia. People slept on chairs. They slept on the floor. A case of a family of ten moving to a three-room apartment with a family of five was not exceptional. Daily calls came to social agencies for beds or chairs. The demand for boxes on which people could sit was almost unbelievable. Now, two years later, matters are worse, much worse. In the summer of 1931, Philadelphia is an epicenter of the nation's financial woes. At 25%, the city's unemployment rate is almost twice the national average. Tens of thousands of families are desperate. Homelessness is rampant. The city, for lack of funding, shutters the doors of its Office of Unemployment Relief, making matters even worse. But amid vast economic inequalities, not everyone in Philadelphia, in the Philadelphia area, is suffering. Watermakers, the city's most fashionable department store, maintains an upbeat public persona, offering no hint of economic hard times. Today's store ad in the Philadelphia Inquirer extols the benefits of two-week summer vacations, a luxury far out of the reach of most locals and most Americans. The ad copy enthuses that the hundreds of thousands of people taking their vacations at this time can double the memories of happy holidays by plenty of sleep, Allowing early rising to see the miracles 
of the day's awakening and to hear the first song of the birds. As if on cue, at 10.12 p.m., Florence Keyser of Greater Philadelphia departs the simmering city by passenger rail for a luxurious tour of Yellowstone National Park. Her all-inclusive first-class vacation through Burlington Escorted Tours cost $161.23, approximately one-fifth the annual wages of persons employed in the service economy. Sunday, August the 2nd. En route to Chicago, Keyser, according to her travel journal, enjoys blue ribbon dining services featuring the finest meats, fish, and poultry, and the freshest vegetables. Even as hundreds of unemployed residents of the Windy City line up for free coffee and donuts at Gangster Alvin Holmes Chicago Soup Kitchen. But no hint of economic stress can be found in Burlington Escorted Tours promotional booklets. The literature employs money travelers to vacation without care. Stand before the mighty splendor of far-flung mountains. Hear the music of deep forests. Share with nature her secrets of beauty and grandeur. And more on the modern road to romance and intelligent travel. Vacation in America's Western National Parks refreshes the intellect, thrills the heart, gratifies longing eyes, and imparts to life new reasons for living. Amid these rather dramatic promotional claims, Keyser's travel diary opens with a stoic recitation of Yellowstone's dimensions and a listing of some of the park's most well-known attractions, including geysers, mud volcanoes, mineral springs, colored pools, lakes, and rivers. Monday, August the 3rd. Through St. Paul, on the Northern Pacific Railway, Keyser then passes through lake regions of Minnesota and the Great Wheat Belt of Minnesota and Dakota. If she had read the Philadelphia Inquirer newspaper the day of her departure from the city, she knows of the drought and grasshopper plague that has decimated the crops, the grain crops in the region. Does she see the devastation? Her doubt is silent. Tuesday, August the 4th, the foothills of eastern Montana roll by in the early morning hours. Two weeks earlier, a farmer in Sumatra, Montana, northeast of here in Rosebud County, had written Governor John Erickson, in, and in desperation he asked, is there any place in this state where we people here can go to get state work? Keisha knows nothing of this, nothing of the suffering. She fails to make note even of place names in eastern Montana and south central Montana until Livingston, where an open side observational car is added to the main, added to the train before it turns south. She writes nothing of her passage through the Paradise Valley. In Gardner, she and her companions transfer from rail car to tour bus. They pass through Roselle Arch. But again, no commentary from Keyser. After lunch at the Mammoth Hotel, 
the park tour begins. A government ranger, in other words, leads the group on a hike, using it, and the government ranger was then a popular designation for park rangers. Describing Mammoth Terrace, Kieser's diary comes alive. Over the hot springs, foundations, and terraces, built up tier upon tier, into beautifully carved and delicate features of pink, yellow, and brown, she and her group hikes with the interpreted ranger, of whom the Philadelphian offers no reflection. But what of that nameless part of ranger? How did he view Kieser and her group? Ranger terms relationships, according to Yellowstone Chief Park Naturalist Dorothy Yeager, included unspoken dimensions. Yeager said, I firmly, Yeager said, I firmly believe that in dealing with the park visitor and explaining the phenomenon to him, all things taken into consideration, we should resort to methods used to teach a child of 15 years. This is not intended as an insinuation that the average visitor is mentally deficient. It simply means that the average person, not trained in sciences, must be treated as a 15-year-old child when scientific principles are being, being explained. We must, however, guard against the tourists knowing this. Yeager further insisted that often, Tourists as sheep require herding, a practice commonly referred to among rangers as riding herd on dudes. Tourist groups, he declared knowingly, can be handled best with modern psychology. From the time a tourist enters the park gate, especially be he a real traveler, he is herded. Necessity, necessity demands that these measures be adopted, deplorable as it may seem. Park operators sometimes complain of tourist hurry, Yeager admitted, but the practice remained necessary. Burlington tours served as a willing accomplice. Unless rail tourists, Yeager insisted, are pushed from one lecture or guide to another, they will not attend. The naturalist cautioned, either because they know nothing about it or because they were inclined to sit in the hotel or a large lobby over a good cigar. The tour continues, Wednesday, August 5th. Geysers are the star attractions. Norris Geyser Basin, a short stop at Paint Pots. Excelsior Geyser Basin, now known as Midway Geyser Basin, Biscuit Basin, Upper Geyser Basin, Morning Glory Pool. The most iconic feature of the park merits but one mechanical pair of descents in Florence Keyser's Diary. Old Faithful Geyser flings a 150 foot column of boiling water and live steam into the air each hour and a million and a half gallons of water, or 33,225,000 gallons a day. In her wanderings around the upper geyser basin, perhaps 
Florida's Caesar's solid and unusual and passionate figure living in the Geyser Basins that summer. They call him Geyser Bill. Notes a part of press release the same month as Caesar's visit. He might as well be known as Thomas Ankrum, B.G., Bachelor of Geysers. He's the watchdog of the Geyser Basins in Yellowstone National Park and spends his time observing geyser activity, regularity, peculiarity, and their unique pranks. Living in the park and sleeping in his car from June through September, Anchor, a retired Army surgeon, Sergeant, was, was almost as regular in his study as Old Faithful in, is in his eruption. And he does all of his observation and study for the sheer love of it. An early example of what would become known as a geyser gazer, Ankrum strapped the worlds apart, visitor, resident, and amateur scientist, took notes on and photographs of geyser eruptions from 1931 to 33. In later years, his spectacular records proved valuable. Thomas Ankrum and Forrest Keyser represented two quite different worlds. Living in his car in nature, Ankrum, a thrifty nomad during the Great Depression, contributed to scientific knowledge. Keyser, on the other hand, lodged, dined, and danced in the Old Faithful Inn, an exclusive and expensive establishment into which only clients were allowed entrance through the big red doors until after World War II. Thursday, August 6th. A morning hike in the upper Geyser Basin. Then south and east, past Kepler Cascades, over the continental divide twice into West Thumb. An optional speedboat across Yellowstone Lake to Lake Hotel, dining, dancing, and lodging in the park's finest hotel. Friday, August 7th. Keyser's first view at Grand Canyon is an artist's point. Reflective, she describes the canyon colors as crimson, emerald, cobalt, amber, ochre, snow white, lemon, and silver gray. She hikes along the rim of the canyon and down to Red Rock to the foot of the canyon. Here, finally, Keyser seems to experience her greatest connection with the park. Declaring the Grand Canyon the climax of Yellowstone. Dancing in bridge, bringing it to the day. Saturday, August the 8th, over fishing bridge and to the east entrance, lunch at Silver Pass Lodge, displaying a keen sense of awareness and passion, not always evident in her many impersonal descriptions of Yellowstone. Kimo marvels of Silver Pass Lodge that this place sure has good gingerbread. Back on the road, departing from Yellowstone, through the Shoshone National Forest, dinner in Cody, Wyoming, then aboard a train for the return trip east. Three days later, at 9 a.m., Florence Keats was back home in Pennsylvania from her vacation without care. Financially shielded, 
from the economic calamity that engulfs the nation, her hometown, and, unbeknownst to her, had nipped at her heels in Yellowstone. Florence Keyser's tour of Yellowstone in August 1931 takes place as dark economic clouds of the Great Depression overshadow the park. Later, the day that Keyser and her tour group departed Yellowstone, park administrators and commercial concessionaires, concerned with a decrease in visitation and hence revenue, meet at the Mammoth Hotel to discuss ways and means of encouraging visitors to spend longer periods in the park. That a worrying conversation comes too late. A steep decline in visitors during the next few weeks leads the Yellowstone Park Hotel Company and the Yellowstone Park Lodge and Camps Company to plead with Superintendent Roger Toll to close the Lake Hotel and Lake Lodge and Roosevelt Lodge at the close of the business on August 31. Toll reluctantly obliges. The early closures create inconveniences for tourists, but not all visitors are treated alike. Rail visitors holding tickets for stop at Lake Hotel are moved to hotels in Old Faithful Canyon Villages or receive a refund of their money. Motorists, typically of lower socioeconomic status and unable to afford the premier hotels, are presumably on their own. Mere days later, National Park Service Director Horace Albright, previously Yellowstone Superintendent during the decade of the 20s, arrives in the Grand Ole Park. Impressed with the park's improved road system and overall conditions, he enthuses that he has never seen the roads in better condition or the park in general in better trim than it is at the present time. Current Yellowstone Superintendent Roger Toll, in turn, takes pride in the condition of the roads, expressing approval of the new grading, oil and servicing, pleased visitors, and made tourists forget entirely the dust evil. The very absence of complaints about the roads in Keyser's diary perhaps tacitly affirms Toll's conclusions. Unfortunately, few visitors remain to quietly enjoy the ease of travel. Newly opened roadside museums at Fishing Bridge and Norris and Madison catering to motoring tourists also greet Albright. Collectively, the structure signaled an improvement and expansion of interpretive services freely available to for self-guided park visitors to partake of at their own leisure. Albright's enthusiasm, Toll's pride, better roads, and new museums notwithstanding, Somerdis settles over Yellowstone in late summer and fall of 1931. A cascade of early closures in the park signals a westerly march of the collapsing national economy. Up until this time, rail tourism had been the mode of travel favored by upper middle class and wealthy visitors like Forrest Keyser, and hence a source of significant revenue for park businesses. But in 1931, rail tourism drops by a dramatic 30% never to recover. Driven by mountain bank failures, rapid deflation, a soaring unemployment rate that topped 20%. The Great Depression descends upon America's bad, wild landscapes. 
Abraham Abdul described the year as trying times as ever before in the history of America's national parks. Businesses and accommodations and services fell drastically, causing serious losses. Told me today in Yellowstone, the continued depression was noticeable in the number of park visitors. Final and final annual park visitation numbers tumbled three percent from the year prior. The first year-over-year -year decline since 1918, the height of World War One. Tourist spending also fell as visitors, evidence and financial worries, tended to spend as little time, spend as little as possible, and to seek the cheapest type of accommodations. Reflecting upon the economic challenges in Yellowstone and other national parks that began in 1931, National Park Service Treasurer Albright, the following year, incorporated visionary language from the Organic Act of 1872 that created Yellowstone National Park and offering an assessment of how the NPS might respond to the times. National Park Administration, he wrote, should see primarily the benefit of the people rather than financial gain, and such enjoyment should be free to the people without vexatious admission charges and other fees. Lawrence Keyser, unlike many Yellowstone visitors in 1931, had come and gone without a care, seemingly ignoring the imploding <coughs> national economy. Her Yellowstone experience, ensconced within the safety of a luxury group tour, defied realities of a rapidly declining rail tourism industry and masked mounting woes in Yellowstone. From her sheltered perspective, it keeps notice the words for the benefit and enjoyment of the people embedded in the Roosevelt Arch. Did she take note of the roadside campgrounds occupied by visitors traveling on tight budgets? Beyond cursory exchanges, did she take the time to personally and inquisitively inquisitively converse with a park ranger, a hotel employee, or a dining room attendant, economically lower to middle class Americans from various walks of life, living and working together in one of America's most extraordinary places. Alongside the overhanging cloud of financial fear, did she notice the threads of the emerging Yellowstone ethos reflected in improved roads, new museums, professional naturalist educators, socioeconomically democratic currents, and the unprecedented curiosity and dedication of volunteer citizen scientists, guys reveal. Not yet fully visible in mid-national distress, these hints of the dawning of a new era sprouted from the nation's western national treasures. Even as the financial calamity of the Great Depression curtailed luxury travel and devastated many lower and middle class families, from Philadelphia to Montana families, the evolving identity of Yellowstone and other Western national parks pointed to a future no longer dependent upon well-heeled, trained-to-ring Americans such as Wallace Easter.